Greetings, listeners in listener land. Welcome to St. Louis in Tune with Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston, where we size up current and historic events involving people, places, and things in areas such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports. We originate from and connect the gateway city to our country's current cultural fabric and lives. This is pretty spectacular. There's a vintage jazz label. It's called Rivermont Records. Some original masters were discovered, 30-year-old recordings of all-star giants. And on the line, we have Brian S. Wright. He specializes in ragtime and early jazz piano styles. He has a Grammy-nominated label, Rivermont Records, which specializes in ragtime and early jazz. He is also a pianist and musicologist based in Pennsylvania. He is an instructor at the University of Pennsylvania. He recently did a lecture here in Sedalia, Missouri, on Scott Joplin. He's done that for the Scott Joplin International Ragtime Festival, as well as many other ragtime festivals. And also on the line is Dan Levinson, who was the 2017 winner of the Hot House Magazine's NYC Jazz Fans Decision Award for the Best Clarinetist. Go Clarinets. Right. He fronts his own groups and also a sideman and performed with Mel Torme, Wynton Marcellus, Dick Hyman. He's based in New York City. He's performed with Woody Allen's band, also at Carnegie Hall with Late Night with Conan O'Brien, Garrison Keillor's A Prairie Home Companion radio show, recorded over 150 CDs. It goes on and on. Gentlemen, welcome to St. Louis in Tune. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you, so you Ronald. Yeah. Can well, I ask a question before we start? Absolutely. Can you all give us a definition of ragtime? What would your definition of what ragtime music is? I guess I'll jump in here. This is Brian. So ragtime is a popular music style that emerged in the late 1800s, and essentially it fit fuses marching rhythms in the accompaniment with a syncopated melody line, so a melody that has accents a little bit off the beat. And this combination makes it a very danceable music, and it went on to influence all kinds of popular music that has come since from rock and roll to rap. Okay. So it's a danceable music that, all right, came out turn of the century there. So let's really get into this now. So so that evolves how into jazz. People have written entire theses on this, and Dan, if you want to say something, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, you wrote the thesis. (laughs) We have a bunch of doctors on the line here. (laughs) I I did write... Yeah, I did write my thesis on ragtime, but I would say that ragtime and jazz sort of developed for a while side by side around the last turn of the century. Jazz, like ragtime, features a lot of syncopated melodies, often against a fairly rhythmic, straightforward accompaniment. But where jazz differs a bit from ragtime is that jazz becomes more improvisational. There's more room for soloists to to take extended improvised solos, whereas ragtime tends to be a bit more written out in advance. That's not always true, but that's generally the case. Dan, what's your thoughts on that? I agree with all that. It's basically ragtime. Ragtime is often, but not always, written down, and jazz evolved out of that, exactly like Brian said. A lot of those jazz musicians couldn't read, so they had to improvise on the melodies, and came out of not only right time, but marching band music and also a different European influence. Let me throw another clink in this is the term that's utilized a lot, especially down in New Orleans, Dixieland. Dixieland jazz, Dixieland music is 
ex- explain to listeners a little bit about how that has either morphed off of jazz or ragtime or is a combination thereof? You don't use that word. In, in fact, when I started playing professionally about 35 years ago, it had fallen out of fashion and we were even then calling it traditional jazz. But now that word has become offensive to many people. And Winton called me out on it about 25 years ago when I used that word, not even in reference to the music, but I was referring to a record album that I bought that came out in the 1950s. That term was probably came into use in the late 40s and into the 50s during the revival of early styles of jazz. And, and then suddenly jazz became the newer form of the music and the original form of jazz had a new name. And when I think of, when I think of that word, I imagine all the 1950s sort of caricatures of that music and people in red and white striped vests and straw hats and all that, when in reality that was jazz before anything else was jazz. And it wasn't called Dixieland in the 19, early 1900s. And that term only came into play when there were other styles of jazz. There was swing and bebop and pool and modern and all these other terms. So some man, Eddie Condon, who, was, who spent his life devoted to playing early styles of jazz and preserving them, hated that word because it implied that the music was developed in, entirely in the South. And he was from, I think he was from Indiana, and I think, in fact, his daughter may be listening right now. But Tondon, Tondon and other people, in fact, the people who inspired this album that we're talking about today, came from the Midwest and Chicago area and developed jazz up there. And, of course, all the recordings made by the pioneers, including King Oliver, the New Orleans Rhythm Kings, Jelly Roll Morton, Johnny Dodds, Jimmy Noon, and the list goes on and on. They were all made in Chicago and not in New Orleans. And a lot of those musicians came from New Orleans, but they came up the river and and they made their names in Chicago. And sometime around 1928, the, the epicenter of jazz shifted from Chicago to New York. So we just tend to use the word traditional, trad jazz or traditional jazz or classic jazz. There's a lot of different terms for it, but really it's just music. It's great music and it's the earliest form of jazz it was the first record started to be made in 1917 and we uh, we that music was unlike anything else on record at that time so it revolutionized the music industry and suddenly every every hotel every club wanted to have a jazz band many of them weren't actual jazz bands but they used the name it was a hot term that's in the late teens and early 20s that's a great explanation, and I appreciate that, Dan, how you really laid that out yeah. to explain the extent of that. We're talking to Dan Levinson and also Brian Wright about a recent original masters that were uncovered. And Brian, go ahead and discuss that. How are these recordings discovered? Dan, in a way, would be the better one to speak because it <laughs> okay, was Dan, really go Dan for it. <laughs> who brought this project to life. Because, Dan, you work um, with the family on this and the New York Public Library. Yeah, let's clarify that the recordings were never lost so they were never discovered. There you go. They were made 30 years ago, and I was on the original session. It was the first time I'd ever been in a recording studio before, and I was very nervous, and I was around my heroes, all-time greats of jazz, people like Milt Hinton and Bob Haggart and 
Marty Gross and so many others, and unfortunately some of whom are no longer with us. Dick Hyman, who was the music director of the project, is still with us, and he's 95 and still active and performing. Anyway, he did a concert on July 30th of 1992, and it's music. It's on the album. And he invited George Avakian, legendary record producer and a champion of Chicago jazz, to the rehearsal a month earlier for the recording session. And Avakian loved what he heard and wanted to record it. So we went into the old RCA studios in Midtown, and we had David Baker, who was not the, uh, not the educator, but the recording engineer, who had done a lot for Vanguard and, in fact, the founder of Vanguard Records, one of the co-founders, Seymour Solomon, had originally told George he would put the album out. So George paid for it. He paid for the sessions. He paid all the musicians. And we recorded it, and it sounded beautiful. It's the only 100% analog recording I ever did. And that this is a testament to how great analog was, because it really sounds so beautiful and rich. And George, and then for some reason, maybe the tremendous cost involved, but Seymour Solomon pulled out for the album, for the album, he pulled out, after George had paid the expenses, and George was stuck footing the bill. So Avakian, who was then, well, he was born in 1919, this is 1992, so he's, what, 73? He spent the remainder of his life trying to find a label that would issue the album and, and reimburse him his expense. Huh. And I saw letters in his collection that he'd written to RCA, and it never happened. And in, in June of 2017, I stayed in touch with George, and we worked together a lot. And he came to a lot of my jobs. In June of 2017, I went to visit him, and, uh, and I said, is there any hope for getting the album out? And he says, I was never able to find a label. And by that time, he donated all of his collection to the New York Public Library, and he said, I don't even think I have it anymore. I don't have the Masters. And I said, I have the Masters because I had a copy of the Masters, not the tapes, but the two-track digital Master, because we went in 10 years later, and Malcolm Addy, legendary audio restoration engineer and recording engineer, had mixed and edited the album. So it was done, but we just didn't have a label. George said to me, he says, get it issued. He said, I don't need the money, just... Get it issued. And his son was there and heard him say that. And his son actually echoed that in a text message to me later. He said, just, George wants you to take it and run with it. That was five years ago. And at that time, I exhausted all of my options. I contacted a few people. Nobody seemed willing to put it out. And I gave up. And then George passed away, I think, in November of that year, 2017. So in... Um, fast forward three years, 2020, I get a phone call from Dick Hyman, who was then, what, 93, and he said, I'm listening to the album that we did. It's such a shame it never came out. It's a great album. Huh. And I thought about it. And in those three years, Brian had started putting out new recordings of traditional jazz. And prior to that, correct me if I'm wrong, Brian, he'd only been putting out reissues of 1920s music and new recordings of ragtime, but not jazz. And when Dick said that to me, I thought Brian would be 
the perfect person to put this out. And I was rereading this morning. I was rereading the original message I sent to Brian. And I didn't have to ask twice. He wrote back immediately, and he was exuberant. So from that point, it took two years. The New York Public Library was closed because of the pandemic, and that's where George's collection was, Bakian's collection. I had to get in there. I wanted to see all the paperwork. I wanted to see if I could get the photos. So in June of last year, I finally got into the New York Public Library and found the Holy Grail, all of the papers and photos related to this project. Wow. It was never lost. It just, George couldn't get it issued. And Brian, not only did he issue it, he went to great lengths, spared no expense in producing the most lavish package I've ever been involved with by far. It's not a it's not a booklet inside a CD. It's a CD and a booklet, and the booklet mirrors the... It's a hardcover book that mirrors the actual 78 RPM album that George produced wow. in 1940 when he was 21 years old. An album of 78s that were new recordings of musicians playing in the Chicago jazz style. And so... Our artist, who I think is also listening, Joe Bosom, who's done all of my album covers, and he recreated that George, the George uh, Avakian album cover from 1940 with all the new information on it. And Brian put together this beautiful booklet, all these photos. I don't know how Brian does so many things. Impossible that one person can do all this and manage the Sedalia Ragtime Festival. But... <laughs> Brian is superhuman, so I'm so grateful to him for doing this. It must be something in the water in Pennsylvania. Yeah, <laughs> really. <laughs> Brian, talk about One Step to Chicago, the album. And Dan's really laid some things out for you right there. Expand and how your connection was made, and then what you did to really run with this particular album and piece that you've got. Sure. There's a lot there, and I'll take a chunk out of the first question, the music on the album. So George Avakian, who produced this recording, really got his start in the music business in the late 1930s when he was a college student at Yale. He had an interest in jazz styles of the 1920s and wrote a letter to Columbia Records at the time, encouraging them to reissue some of this music of the jazz masters of the 20s, people like Louis Armstrong and Muggsy Spanier and others. And what ended up happening is that the folks at Columbia said, we don't really have anyone specialized in that era or that type of music, but you seem to know what you're doing. Why don't you come here and work for us? And that's what he did. He started working at Columbia and producing first reissues of jazz recordings from the 1920s. And at a certain point, he went over to DECA and started producing for DECA records as well. And it was for DECA in about 1940, he produced what became the world's very first jazz album, collection of recordings recorded especially for album release. And that was something called DECA Presents an Album of Chicago Jazz. And it came out with six 78 RPM records, musicians like Eddie Condon recreating some of the jazz sounds of a decade earlier. And George Avakian would go on to produce scores of jazz albums by everyone from Dave Brubeck and Louis Armstrong to Edith Piaf and Art Blakey. He had an extraordinarily long and versatile career. And uh, 
as Dan has already said, in 1992, he organized this recording session, which really was hearkening back to that very first album he had done in 1940, spotlighting Chicago-style hot jazz of the late 20s. And Dan's already told you about the concert, followed by the recording session that ultimately produced this album. So, in a way, this provides a bookend to Avakian's more than 70-year career. He produced the first album in 1940, and this is taking that concept and updating it to, to then 1992, but finally seeing release 30 years later here in 2022. And it was the so same the same you, songs, wasn't it? A lot of the same songs, but not entirely. Okay. There's a bit of overlap. Of course, the performances are different, but it's repertoire associated with a particular jazz clarinetist of the late 20s from Chicago named Frank Teschmacher, mm -hmm. who was a, a very colorful character and a, just a brilliant musician with a very distinctive sound, who unfortunately died at the age of... Daniel, correct me if I'm wrong, I think 26, following a car accident in which he was thrown from the car, struck his head on the curb and died. So he unfortunately left the scene tragically young, but not until he had made some really remarkable records that are classics to this day. And those provide the foundation for the tracks on this CD. They're all tunes associated with Frank Teschmacher. So songs like I Found a New Baby, China Boy, Shimisha Wobble, <laughs> the Wabash Blues, Nobody's Sweetheart, the Jasmine Blues, the song Indiana, things like that. There was one thing I'll add to that, and Brian, I, you're so articulate. <laughs> That's why you wrote the thesis, and I didn't, but that, <laughs> that's exactly right. One, one thing we should point out is there are two different bands on this album, as there were on the concert the night before. There was Dick Hyman's band, which played note-for-note -note recreations, of 1927 and 28 recordings. And Dick himself had written the transcription just for that concert. And I was in that band playing the, the Frank Teschmacher parts. Then the other band was led by Kenny Deverne, who no longer with us, but then and now one of my all-time clarinet heroes. And Kenny's band did songs that were played by the original Chicago musicians, but not note for note. They kept the spirit of the original music but did, them, did their own interpretations. And so there were two separate bands. There was some duplication. Dan Barrett played trombone in both bands, and Dick Hyman played piano in both bands. But aside from that, they were very, not only different, but almost opposite approaches to playing the music, one being to play it note for note, and the other just to capture the spirit of it. Now we're going to get to the second part of my question here. In a moment, we're going to have to take a, a, a break, and we'll do that in the next segment show of the show. So, guys, you can formulate. Brian, I think I asked you about your development of that whole project, and, and we want to be able to give listeners where they can get, get the album and get everything that you have produced for that. So we're talking to Dan Levinson and Brian Wright. This is about a recently uncovered original masters of a 30-year-old jazz recording featuring jazz all-stars, and we're going to go out with one of the songs. You're listening to St. Louis in Tune on the U.S. Radio Network. You know, each time that we plan a show for St. Louis in Tune, we strive to bring you informative, useful, and reflective stories, as well as interviews about current and historic issues and events that involve 
people, places, and things. And while St. Louis In Tune originates from the Gateway City and covers local topics, we also connect what's going on nationally as well. Our topics cover a wide range of arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, sports, and that's just to name a few. We know there's many radio stations, programs, even podcasts that you could be listening to, and we're glad that you've chosen to listen to St. Louis In Tune. If you've missed any of our previously aired programs of St. Louis In Tune, simply visit stlintune.com. That's stlintune.com. There, you'll find every show from our first to our most current. Use the search engine to look for a show that might interest you from one of the many topics that we've covered. And drop us a line and tell us how we're doing. You can do that at stlintune at gmail.com. That's stlintune at gmail.com. St. Louis In Tune, heard Monday through Friday on the usradionetwork.com and many great radio stations around the U.S. and, of course, right here in St. Louis. And don't forget, check out our website, stlintune.com. That's stlintune.com. Welcome back to St. Louis In Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston. We're having a conversation with Brian Wright and Dan Levinson about the album that you're listening to in the background. And Brian, you've, I guess, would I say produced this album? Yeah, the real producer of the recording was George Avakian, who we've been speaking about. He produced the original session, but Dan Levinson and I worked together to produce, finally, the ultimate release of it on CD vinyl LP and digital download. And get into some of the details about what this package is because it's going to be released on July the 15th coming up here with more than 50 years after George Avakian had really put a lot of these things together. You've got some vinyl which is very very popular coming back very in a strong way and you've got some CDs and as Dan mentioned earlier a book of a lot of information. Discuss some of that so listeners can understand exactly what they would be getting when they purchase this. Sure. So when Dan approached me with the idea of releasing this project, as he said a moment ago, I jumped at it because I recognized the just historical importance of an album like this. Probably the only time many of these jazz titans were together in the studio. I mean, you have, in some cases, musicians like Milt Hinton and Bob Haggard, both legendary jazz bassists whose careers go back to the 1930s. And they're playing here with people like Dick Hyman on the piano. You've got Dan Barrett on trombone, Dick Sutalter playing cornet, Ken Peplowski playing the saxophone, Vince Giordano playing tuba and bass sax, Marty Gross and Howard Alden on banjo and guitar. These are people who are just legends in the traditional jazz field. And I don't know of another time that all of them appeared together on the same record. So I left it the chance to release this and really wanted to give it a packaging that would suit the importance of the material. So Dan has mentioned he wrote quite extensive commentary that really tells the story of how this whole album came together while also weaving in some of the history behind the music, how it originally started back in the 20s. And Hank O'Neill, who for many years produced a label called Chiaroscuro, which recorded a number of jazz 
important folks from the 70s, 80s, 90s. He wrote a very nice essay talking about the origins of this music. And as Dan said, we uncovered some photos from the session in the New York Public Library, wow. uh, candid shots of the musicians while they were recording this. And I thought there's it's such a neat story, and there's so many wonderful pictures. I wanted to include all of it. So it got to be too big for the standard CD jewel case. So what we ended up doing was essentially preparing a hardback book, an 80-page book that tells the story of this, that includes the photos, and then you have the CD in the back of the book. And because this was recorded on analog tape, which in 1992 was no longer the common way of doing things. Most studios were digital by then. But George Avakian wanted old-fashioned, warm, analog sound. So he paid extra to have this recorded on tape. And to preserve some of that analog warmth, we thought we'd also issue it as a double record LP set so folks can get it on vinyl as well and keep that warm analog sound. And it took two records to, to fit the whole album, and the record set comes with a book that contains all of the photos and commentary from the CD edition as well. But I also realized that some folks aren't necessarily into physical media anymore, so we've prepared digital versions that folks can download from the website if they just want to hear it on their iPhone or iPod or however they listen to digital music. And that comes with a PDF of the full booklet, so you're still not missing out on the story and the pictures if you choose to go the digital route. And people can get that where, Dan? Or Brian, excuse me. Where can they get that? Sure. Right now it's available from the Rivermont Records website, and that's rivermontrecords.com, which is spelled R-I-V-E-R-M-O-N-T, rivermontrecords.com. And you can, it's to be released on July 15th, but if anybody orders it today, we'll ship copies as soon as they're available. The CDs are already in stock, and the vinyl will be coming in the next week or so. So if folks order it, it will be shipped ASAP. And the album's called One Step to Chicago. And Dan, and this is why I said Dan, I was thinking ahead. My brain was moving faster than my mouth. Were you surprised that when George Vakian took this to a variety of record companies that it was never produced or never it never happened it never was released were you surprised that knowing his stature which was he's pretty he's a titan in the industry that nobody would want to go with it i am and i the only thing i can surmise is that he like brian spared no expense and the amount that he needed to be reimbursed must have been astronomical like brian said i didn't even realize that analog analog had gone out by 1992 but i know i did i did see the original analog tapes and they were huge and the machines to play them and and i'm sure and the rca studios and david baker the engineer and all these musicians and it was done all through the musicians union and with the pension and all of that stuff that goes into that so he didn't chart any corners. He did it the right way. And I'm sure that's why Seymour, Sol- Seymour Solomon backed out and why he couldn't get another label to put it out. It must have been in the tens of thousands. Oh, yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Now, Dan, you did mention different jazz styles, and Brian's also mentioned that. Describe that a little bit for listeners so they know exactly. Like you mentioned, the Chicago-style jazz, it's almost barbecue sauces. You've got the Carolina sauce, you've got the Kansas City sauce. <laughs> so explain what different jazz styles are. 
<laughs> yeah, the subgenres. And then even within uh, Chicago jazz, south side of Chicago, which is where um, King Oliver and Louis Armstrong and Jimmy Noon and Johnny Dodds and those cats were, was totally different from where the New Orleans Rhythm Kings and Eddie Condon and the white bands were playing. That's a very different. And in fact, Hal Smith, who was maybe certainly one of the world's authorities on Chicago jazz style and a great drummer, Hal Smith has written some liner notes in the booklet that talked about the Chicago jazz style. So even within that subgenre, there are many subgenres. But I'm, as I said, New Orleans, and Brian said, jazz started down there and then moved up the river, and I'm sure it made stops in St. Louis and Davenport, and when it was in Davenport, a young cornet player by the name of Big Spiderback heard it, and, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. and, well, the rest is history there. But the Chicago-style jazz is different from the New York-style jazz of a few years later, even. And those musicians, there's a, some story, where was I reading recently, about how the Chicago, some of the Chicago jazz musicians went to New York in the late 20s and recorded with some of the then big names in New York, Red Nichols and Myth Mole, and they felt like fish out of water, all these improvising Chicago musicians playing these written arrangements. New York musicians were more into writing arrangements, and it was a much more studious type of jazz. And then you get into the 1930s and swing in 1935, around there, and jazz was constantly evolving. If we think about the 30 years that's elapsed since we made that record and how much the type of music I play has changed versus how much jazz changed, say, from 1917 to 1947, you realize that at that point it was still a developing art form and changing all the time. And yet the music we play, I won't say that I don't ever feel as though I'm in a museum, that I'm just playing something that is... is uh, that is fixed. It is. It, I speak the language, and I'm always trying to create something within the context of that style that I play, and it's the only style that I play. I don't do more modern styles of jazz. So I've never felt that way, but it is a language that's very different from the jazz of the 1940s, for example, in terms of focus on ensemble playing, the melodies, and the harmonies, and I don't really understand the language of later styles of jazz. And I spent some time trying early in my career, but I eventually realized it's not where my heart is. Mm -hmm. My heart has always been in early styles of jazz, and at some point I decided I'm going to play the music that's in my heart, because otherwise it's not honest. And whatever I do, I want it to be genuine. That's wonderful. That's very, that is very honest, because... You have to do what, what works for you right. and not be somebody who you're not. Yeah. Well, that's important to me. That's good. Brian, your interest in ragtime goes way, way back. And my question deals with what was the impetus that got you really hooked? Well, I think I grew up in the 80s and 90s. But my musical tastes were always a bit before my own time. I, as a child, my favorite toy was a battery-operated record player, and I would get hand-me-down records from neighbors, and pretty early on settled on rock and roll of the 50s and 60s as my favorite music as a kid. 
And over time, my taste just progressively crept earlier and earlier. First, it was to Glenn Miller and some of the big bands. And then somewhere along the way, I heard a record by the legendary trumpeter, cornetist, Vic Spiderbeck. And it was just revelatory for me. And I just <laughs> pretty much left. This was music that, that really spoke to me. And from the music of Big Spiderbeck, I started exploring more of the 1920s and 30s style jazz and really developed a pretty serious interest in it. And coincidentally, I was studying piano and playing classical piano and along the line heard some of Scott Joplin's rags and just fell in love with those. And it was a mix of all of that, collecting records, playing piano, and uh, having some influences from family and friends who would pass along these old records to me that just like Dan said, really spoke to my heart. They were the things that interested me. And you must have been really interested because when you became a musicologist, you got your Ph.D. in historical musicology, and that that's not something that you know is on the general track of most people. <laughs> so you had this real heart interest, as Dan was talking passion. about. You followed yeah. your heart and your passion yeah. there, and what a perfect marriage of using your musicology background to delve more into the ragtime. And I'm sorry we missed you when you were here in Sedalia, but what kinds of things do you do at the Scott Joplin International Ragtime Festival and some of the other ragtime festivals that you've been involved with? Sure. So I am currently the artistic director at the Scott Joplin Ragtime Festival, which has been in operation since even before I was born. It goes back to the early 1970s when Scott Joplin's music was featured in The Sting, that famous film and really took over the country for about a, a few months there in 19, I think it was 73 and 74. Right. And that provided the impetus for the first Scott Joplin Festival, which was held in Sedalia, Missouri, because that's where Scott Joplin was living in 1899 when he composed his famous Maple Leaf Rag. And he would live there a few more years and mentor several Sedalians like Arthur Marshall and Scott Hayden, who became notable ragtime composers in their own right. So because of that local connection, the festival was born there. It took a hiatus for a few years in the late 70s and early 80s. But since 1983, it's been running every summer in the first week of June, usually. Of course, the last couple of years were off because of the pandemic. But uh, earlier this month, or actually it's July 1st now, so a month ago, <laughs> June 1st, we had the annual Scott Joplin Ragtime Festival. So that brings in performers, pianists and other instrumentalists, as well as vocalists from around the country and really around the world to play not just the music of Scott Joplin, but of his contemporaries. You'll hear some early styles of jazz, some stride piano by the likes of people like Fats Waller and James P. Johnson, as well as novelty piano styles typified by the sort of piano roll type styles people might be familiar with, things like Kitten on the Keys and music by Zez Confrey and his contemporaries. So it presents a pretty wide swath of popular music of, let's say, 1890s through the 1920s, focused around ragtime. There's outdoor venues that play this music continuously during the festival. There are indoor concerts. There are symposia, lectures on ragtime topics. And people come in from all over the country for this, and it's really a lot of fun. And I'll mention to our St. Louis listeners that the Scott Joplin House is in St. Louis. It's down downtown St. Louis, actually downtown West. And people can go there and, right. and visit that little companionship on onto what he was talking about. To either of you or both of you, when many people who listen to jazz 
especially early jazz, don't know that some of these songs, they actually have a lot of lyrics to them. And I remember listening to Louis Armstrong. Right. He would sing some songs, and then he would play, and he would sing some of the lyrics. When you, if you visit New Orleans, that happens in several clubs and things like that. But these songs, they weren't written for specifically for jazz purposes. They were just songs. Am I right with that, or am I off with that? No, you're mostly right. Most of them, I think about it, most of them were pop tunes, certainly Nobody's Sweetheart, and I Found a New Baby, um, the opening track was probably not written as a song. Actually, I take it back. I think it's from, it, it, there must be lyrics, but I've never seen them. Never seen sheet music, but there are songs in the idiom that were, let's say, maybe strutting with some barbecue, where they were just recordings, and then somebody, after the recording came out, wrote sheet music, and then some very smart people in, in, in the Tin Pan Alley would would add lyrics. So you often see songs in this idiom that were that had lyrics written many years later, and somebody's getting half the royalties on that. <laughs> Make it, making um, the dollar there. Oh, Robert yeah. is an example. At jazz Band Ball, Johnny Mercer wrote lyrics for Jazz Band Ball many years later and and then shares royalties on that. But the song goes back to 1917. Brian, do you have any insights with that to add? Dan... Ben has, I think, laid it out pretty well. Ragtime started in the 1890s, even earlier than that, really, with itinerant musicians in the Midwest who would take melodies that were floating around. At that time, these might be operatic arias or just standard pop songs, and they would start playing them in this more rhythmic, danceable style. As I mentioned, that it gives sort of a, a march-like accompaniment to a syncopated melody line. And so the earliest rags were not composed as rags. They were simply borrowing pop tunes or operatic tunes that people would have already known and adapting them into this style. And it was only after a few decades of this that composers really started writing original pieces as rags. And I think the same goes for jazz. Early on in the history of jazz, they were just taking songs that people already knew and improvising on them and playing them with extra rhythm and playing them in what we would a jazz style. And of course, after some time, people started composing pieces as jazz pieces, but that's not how it started. And another thing relevant to that is that sometimes jazz musicians would take a song and use the chord changes and make a new jazz composition out of it. And then the prototype is I Got Rhythm, and there are thousands and thousands of songs based on the chord changes that I Got Rhythm such to the extent that when I'm on the bandstand and we're playing it, we want to play a tune and maybe somebody in the band doesn't know it, I say, it's rhythm changes, which means it's the same changes as I got rhythm. But at the Jazz Band Ball, which I mentioned previously, uses a very similar chord structure to Shine on Harvest Moon, which had been written 10 years earlier hmm. and had words. So they often did that. But take a, take, and they, at that time, weren't thinking about copyright issues and all that. You can't copyright a chord pattern. So they right. put a new melody to it and have a whole new song. Huh. Interesting. Now, does ragtime, am I hearing it that ragtime really started in the central portion of the country? Is that kind of where it found its birth? Was it, or was it? Well, yes. Okay. I think 
Generally, Missouri is considered the homeland of ragtime. Between Sedalia and St. Louis, most of the early classic ragtime composers were based there. James Scott came out of Missouri, Tom Turpin, Scott Joplin, Arthur Marshall, Scott Hayden, all of these people, Percy Winrick, they were all from Missouri. And eventually the style did spread elsewhere, and we have composers from coast to coast that were composing ragtime by the end of the 1890s. I think it's fair to say that it really originated in the nation's heartland there. Now, folks, you need to get to rivermontrecords.com, rivermont, M-O-N-T, records.com, and check out the One Step to Chicago. My last question, comment for you guys to make, I'm gonna, Brian, I'm going to read a quote from you, and then, Dan, I'm going to expound, I want you to expound on your just being flabbergasted and in awe when you're with these wonderful musicians and what that was like. So here's the quote. This extraordinary recording documents the once-in-a-lifetime meeting of so many jazz greats, all playing in top form and recorded in state-of-the-art sound under Avakian's personal guidance. All-star bands don't always work artistically, but here the chemistry is palpable. The musicians blend beautifully and sound as if they are having the time of their lives. So I'm going to have, Brian, why don't you start first? You weren't there, but you've had this relationship with Dan to really get that. You've listened to these recordings, and you must have it just welled up inside you to sense that was the kind of music that was coming out. Yeah, to go back to the quote, I have through the years a number of all-star jam bands where you get a lot of these top-flight musicians together. They don't normally play together, but you bring them together, and sometimes in front of a crowd, they'll play against each other in a way, trying to show off, and it can be very exciting in the moment, but when you listen to the recording later, it just it's not quite gelling. Everybody's doing their own thing. It's not the same as when you have a band that plays together regularly and the musicians know each other's character and know each other's stylistic traits and can play with each other. And so that's what my comment was about, is that on this recording, when Dan first told me about it and I saw the lineup of musicians, I thought, this is either going to be spectacularly great or with this many (laughs) all-stars who don't normally play together, it could go the other way. But he sent along some samples, and from the first few notes, this is a band that works. These musicians, they're so skilled at what they do. And happily, in this instance, they're all listening to each other and complimenting each other. And when Dick Hyman on the piano comes in with these little fills behind the John Eric Kelso's trumpet, it's just magic. There's no other word for it. And so from the first few notes that I heard, I knew this was going to be a winner. And yeah, I guess I'll turn it to Dan. Yeah, you're so right about that. It can be disastrous. And I've been on, on a bandstand where a concert organizer who doesn't know enough about chemistry between musicians puts a band together based on his favorite musicians and assembles people who have never played together, never played the same style, and, and it's disastrous and it's embarrassing. And in this particular case, you had a whole bunch of people who they may, they may not have all been, I'm sure they weren't all in the recording studio, and other than the night before when we did the concert, they'd never been on the stage together, never all played together in that combination, but they had played together. And the thing that a lot of people don't realize about the music business, and specifically in New York where you have freelance musicians, 
people often come up to me on the bandstand and say, how long have you guys all been together? And it's a band that I put together for the occasion. I have more times than not, I say, we've never played together before. We've all played individually, two people, we've all we played together, maybe three people, but in that particular combination, there are so many freelance musicians that there are almost an infinite number of possibilities. But in this case, you had people that were on the same page to begin with, and many of them had played together before. The drummer Tony DiNicola, for example, had been playing with Kenny DeVern for many years at that point, and they all knew each other, knew their styles. And for me, as I said, it was the first time I'd been in a recording studio, and I'm not being modest by saying that I was not at the level of any of the other musicians. I started playing when I was 20. So I'd only been playing a few years at that point. And even the next youngest person, John Eric Helso, who was a year and is a year older than I am, was had been playing since he was a kid and was much, much more skilled than I was. I didn't know at the time why I was there. I knew that Dick Hyman wanted me. I knew that George Vashian wanted me, but I didn't know why. And it wasn't until many years later it occurred to me, Frank Teschmacher, when he made those original recordings in 1927, had not spent, I had never been in a recording studio before, or certainly not often. And he was fairly new to the instrument. He was a violinist. And had only been playing the clarinet a few years. And he was very green as well. And you can hear that. It's rough around the edges. It's not, the intonation is not perfect. And, and there, I don't want to say mistakes, but there are things that a more technically proficient player would have executed more skillfully. So I was surrounded by all these great musicians and my two living clarinet heroes, Kenny Devern and Ken Vaplowski, were both on the session and sitting, when we did a jam session at the very end, sitting on either side of me. I don't remember ever being that nervous in my life. And it was, <laughs> I just barely got through it, but I, I was so worried about screwing up, and I was in awe of these of all of these people, heroes. Dan Barrett on trombone, still my all-time favorite living musician, and a great influence on me from the time before I even started playing. And he was there. And Dick Hyman, we can't even say enough about him. The man is 95. As but played, but he played with Charlie Parker. He played with Lester Young. His career goes back to the 1940s. Studied with Teddy Wilson, and now think about. There's nobody around that can say that he did all that. Hyman is one of. He's on. Maybe the only sound recording of Charlie Parker. He's the pianist. He was subbing for Bud Powell mm. that night at Birdland, and here I was in the studio. But I can't even begin to tell you what it felt like for me. I just wanted, just wanted to get through it without. Growing up, and there was a point when George Abbasian knew those records well. I couldn't put anything past him. There was one part I played, and I didn't play it perfectly. I missed one note, and I, it wasn't a wrong note. It was just not the note that Teschmacher had played. And I thought we can get by with that take. And I heard—I remember hearing George Abbasian's voice come over on the talkback mic. Oh, let's get one more take so we can get the clarinet right on the bridge. <laughs> oh, oh, so I had to get every note right. And in the end, I think I I surprised myself. I think you're going to surprise people that you've got this whole thing right. 
gentlemen. It's a wonderful album. One Step to Chicago, folks. Get it from rivermontrecords.com. Brian Wright and Dan Levinson, thank you very much for taking time to talk to us on St. Louis in Tune. Thank you so much for having us. We appreciate you listening to this episode of St. Louis in Tune. Take time to look at the show notes on the website for everything that was mentioned on this episode. St. Louis in Tune is produced in cooperation with KWRH 92.9 FM and Motif Media Group. For St. Louis in Tune, I'm Arnold Stricker.